Welcome back to the podcast. In our last couple of episodes, we saw the independent settlements of Providence, Newport, Portsmouth, and Chowomet come together and form the entity that would be the predecessor to the modern-day state of Rhode Island. As Rhode Island is not an other state of America, but rather a very real state of America, that's where our episode ended. Now we're going to do the same origin story treatment with Connecticut. Yes, the great state of Connecticut, of course, is the descendant of the Connecticut River Colony, but that was just a chunk of the modern-day state of Connecticut. In fact, there were two other ingredients. We have the Sabre Colony and the New Haven Colony. This episode will focus on the earliest of those two, the Colony of Saybrook, which is unlike any other colony we've learned about this season. Because among other things, it is a bought and paid for colony, a prefab colony of the great Puritan lords themselves. Many of these men would be peers in the House of Lords, having hereditary titles, large estates, lots of political influence. You would think they would be quite comfortable in England proper. So why were they paying to make a colony at the very edge of the English realm? Well, the answer to that is going to require a little bit of a history lesson. In 1603, Queen Elizabeth dies, and King James I comes to the throne of England. Of course, in Scotland, he's King James VI. There existed within the Anglican Church the Puritan wing, which sought to purify the new church by removing all the vestigial Catholic elements that the Anglican Church contained and embrace a more Protestant service and, to be more specific, a more Calvinist way of practicing their religion. Now, under Queen Elizabeth, the Anglican Church had been a, a big tent denomination. In other words, things were left vague enough that you could have congregations that were more Catholic and you could have congregations that were pretty much mainstream Calvinists. And yet it all existed under the bishops, who of course answered to the head of the Anglican Church, the monarch, him or herself. The year after ascending to power, James I attended the Hampton Court Conference, which was a discussion between him and leading Puritans as to what the Puritans want to see in his new version of the Anglican Church. The one positive takeaway is that the Puritans asked for a standardized vernacular English version of the Bible, something literate Englishmen and women could read and understand. A very Protestant request. And from this, we of course get the King James version of the Bible. It wasn't made at this conference, but it was the impetus that led King James to commission the creation of this Bible. But other than that, King James did not like how the Puritans were almost demanding things of him. Far far on the outside of what their station would otherwise demand in terms of treating their king. One thing they asked for continuously was the elimination of the bishops. They saw this again as a complete holdover from the Catholic Church, this type of hierarchy not needed any longer. The Puritans believed that the elect, through their outward works, would be able to demonstrate to other people who were of the elect, in other words, saved, and they would form congregations. Those congregations of the elect would be bathed in God's grace. It would not require this odd sort of religious and yet secular position of a bishop to be over them and then connect them to a worldly regent at the top. To this, King James believed no bishops, no king. The Anglican Church was a weekly source of indoctrination to convince the people of England to remain faithful to their regent. Be good, follow the laws, pay your taxes. Without the bishops between the congregations 
and the king, the Anglican Church would be decentralized. Being the head of it would mean nothing. And as some historians have suggested, like the author Alan Massey, essentially this would be a spiritual republic, something far too modern for King James, a 17th century monarch. From this conference on, there would be a growing divide between the supporters of the king, the royalists, monarchists, what have you, and the Puritans, who would be continuously associated with the opposition to the king. This division would not be lost on the king himself. In 1618, he even published a book called The Book of Sports that encouraged recreation on Sundays to counter the Puritan movement to ban all such fun things happening on the Sabbath. But still, for most of the rule of King James I, the Puritans were still under that big tent, as I said before. You could still put them in the Anglican fold. Now, there were tears at that tent. If you go to the extreme end of Puritanism, you reach Brownism, or Brown the Brownists, the Separatists. The most famous group of these people that you would be familiar with would be the Pilgrim Settlers, who came over on the Mayflower. Now, the Separatists believed that the Anglican Church was so contaminated at its root with Catholicism and paganism and other evil elements that it was not able to be purified. The Puritan movement was futile, and it was only with a clean separation from the Anglican Church that you could have the real and genuine Calvinist Church of God, consisting of the elect and no one else. These separatists would find themselves fleeing England, ending up in places like the Netherlands, specifically Leiden. That would be the group that would eventually take the Mayflower to the New World in 1620. But it would be King James's successor that would amplify all these divisions. James I dies March 27th, 1625. His son, Charles I, comes to power. Now, Charles has already tasked Bishop Loud, a known Puritan hater, even while his father was still alive, with compiling lists of Puritan reverence. And now that Charles was king and the head of the Anglican Church, many of these reverends moving forward would be silenced, not allowed to preach to their congregations, and based on their beliefs, sometimes found guilty of criminal charges. This would be true for Reverend John Wheelwright, who we did an episode on. This would be true of his mentor, Reverend John Cotton, who led Wheelwright to New England and the Hutchinson family, which included Anne Hutchinson from the Marbury family. Her father also being silenced by the church, at least for a time, for his Puritan views. Needless to say, Bishop Laud was so hated by the general English public, especially the Puritans, that he actually made Charles I less popular by association. Also, many of the bishops and Charles himself had a liking toward the religious approach to Anglicanism known as Arminianism, which taught that all mankind was welcome to God's free grace. There were no elect and damned. It was your own free will to seek out that grace. And if you chose not to, you could be damned. This countered the Calvinist and then, by way of Calvinism, Puritan belief in predestination. Fate was already written for you. You were either elect or damned from birth. And in the strictest sense, there was no free will. To the Puritans, Arminianism, which seemingly accepted everyone and offered God's grace to everyone, seemed very Catholic. The movement also emphasized demonstrating reverence to God by making everything beautiful, by the beautification of churches and services, having high ceremonies, 
things gilded in gold, beautiful images, elaborate garb on the clergy. Now, if this reminds you of a Catholic service, it also reminded the Puritans of a Catholic service. Again, too Catholic for their taste. The Puritans would argue that this was a distraction and a focusing on ritual rather than the word of God. But let's keep going with this split here between the Puritans and Charles I. In 1628, his closest advisor, Buckingham, is assassinated, which only had the effect of making Charles I cling to his wife, which to us today sounds just fine. Of course, a husband, if they could rely on their wife for support, that sounds just lovely. But in this case, his wife and the Queen of England is the daughter of King Henri IV of France, Henrietta Maria, a devout French Catholic woman. Yes, Charles I is the leader of the Anglican Church, but his wife is Catholic. And immediately, people saw Henrietta as a sorceress of sorts, who was manipulating her husband and binding the Anglican Church secretly to the Catholic Church. I'm going to quote Leanda Delise in her book on Henrietta Marie. She spoke French, ate French food, enjoyed French amusements. Nor was there any attempt to be discreet about her religion. The Catholic queen only confirmed the suspicions of the separatist types and greatly worried the Puritan types, and then again increased that gulf between the high Anglican bishops, the monarchists, and the Puritans who politically would become aligned with Parliament. And after 1629, Charles became so fed up with Parliament, he refused to open a new one, which sounds strange to us today. But back then, the ancient rights of the English made it clear that a king could not tax without convening a parliament, where both the nobles could be represented in the House of Lords and the common folks in the House of Commons. This right would be echoed in American history when we go out and say, hey, no taxation without representation. What we were actually referring to was this ancient English right. And so Charles, fed up with parliament, begins this period of personal rule, where he doesn't call for a new parliament which means he will never have the funds to really have England go to war during this period, as wars are very expensive. But even in his own personal finances, he'll have to issue monopolies on many different common consumer goods just to collect a fee from those monopoly holders. This, of course, would cause prices to go through the roof and for there to be a general distaste for the rule of Charles I, just as we might see in the United States when quality of life goes down under a president. Whether the president is responsible for it or not, people tend to blame that person. And this whole lead-up has been the background to the Puritan exodus from Old England to the New. And yet, New England, and the settlement of it, on paper, was supposed to be planned out by a high Anglican by the name of Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, who presided over the Council for New England. But sometime in the late 1620s, he became disinterested in the Council, and was more concerned with his primary duties as commander of the fort at Plymouth. That's Plymouth, England. That's when the Earl of Warwick put his foot in the door and became one of the leaders of this council, which in 1628 inadvertently gave the Massachusetts Bay Company the power to govern itself in the New World and thus become the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Never its intention. Puritans now came over by the thousands Often the leader of these migrations were these Puritan reverends who had been silenced. They would relocate to the New World and bring entire congregations with them. And before long, Massachusetts 
dragging along the Plymouth colony with it, became thriving colonies that were approaching complete self-sufficiency. Truly a New England. But those who would govern this New England would not be the lords, the barons, the dukes. It was the emerging middle class. Today, perhaps we would equate it with our upper middle class. The group of people who own businesses, such as textile businesses, and also own several properties, own large amounts of farmland. Rather than focus on subsistence, they had enough wealth to invest all around the transatlantic world, or save, or transport. In other words, they weren't serfs tied to the land, or even peasants who had no ability to really make themselves mobile in the economic sense or even the geographic sense. Without the aristocracy in New England, this middle class would govern. And honestly, they seem to have liked it that way. If you remember on her episode on Anne Hutchinson, one of her biggest supporters was Sir Henry Vane, a man from genuine aristocracy. Her father was on the Privy Council. And within a year of Sir Henry Vane, only 22 years old, showing up in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, he becomes governor over all the other candidates who had been there for years helped found the colony. And so in some deep way, the ruling middle class of New England very much wanted things to stay the way they were. The aristocracy had set up the councils, had derived power from the king to claim all this land from the Native Americans, participated in the division and the delegation of those divisions down to the middle class, but the middle class really didn't want them on the ground in New England. And yet, and this has been a long way of getting to the subject, and yet that's what the colony of Saybrook would become. In 1632, the previously mentioned Earl of Warwick took his grant from the Council for New England and subdivided it to the Saybrook Patentees. These men would be 15 in total, high-ranking parliamentarians. The primary investors, of course, would be Lord Say and Seal. Now, that's one person. He's Lord He's Lord of Say and Seal, and Lord Brooke, hence the name Saybrook. Now, these men had other investments from Maine all the way down to the Caribbean, and there's no evidence at this time, 1632, that they intended to move to this colony themselves. But by 1634, something had changed, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But how we know things have changed is that John Winthrop's son, John Winthrop being governor of Massachusetts for much of its early existence, his son, also named John Winthrop, known as John Winthrop the Younger, goes to England. Being as he is from a known Puritan family of the New World, he becomes associated with the Saybrook Patentees, where in July of 1635, he is tasked with becoming governor of their new colony of Saybrook for a term of one year. Based on the patent that they had received from the Earl of Warwick, this new place, Saybrook, would have to be located on the Connecticut River. The Winthrop family themselves had interest in starting a Connecticut colony further up the river. And so Saybrook, both parties would prefer to be at the base of the river, the mouth of the river, on the Atlantic, perhaps becoming a great port city someday. Under Governor Winthrop the Younger would be an engineer by the name of Line Gardiner, who worked for the Prince of Orange, creating many of his fortifications. The Prince of Orange at the time being the monarch of the Netherlands. Gardner was a proven asset and really didn't see much opportunity in going to the very edge of the known world to build a fortress for seemingly no purpose. But it was on the recommendation of his friend, who was in the Netherlands at the time, John Davenport, that he decided to take the job. 
Now, Davenport would show up in the nearby New Haven colony. So Winthrop Jr. takes the job, Gardner takes the job, and the two of them are to take a 50-man team and begin building this new colony of Saybrook, starting with a fortification. And for some reason, which we'll speculate wildly about, there's an increased sense of urgency. And the Saybrook patentees very much wanted this building crew to get going as soon as possible. On top of the original 50, Lion Gardener was promised another 300 men, 200 of which were to help build fortifications, 50 would be farmers, and 50 would be house builders. This extra batch of men never showed up. What's interesting to note here is the amount of people dedicated to building this fortification and the fact that they wanted this fortification built before anything else. With the work underway in the fall of 1635, two of the patentees to Saybrook, Sir Arthur Hesselridge and George Fenwick, write a letter to Winthrop, urging him to increase the construction at what speed possible, and that men of very high class would be arriving soon in order to inhabit the town. And now we have to ask ourselves, what is going on in England that these men are financing a colony so far to the west it nearly drops off of their maps? While it is known without parliament and during personal rule, Charles I gained a lot of enemies, not just the Puritans, not just the people who would sit in parliament, but of the aristocratic class in general. And if those aristocrats were also members of the House of Lords and a Puritan, well, all the more to hate. More directly, in 1626, Charles I, without getting money from Parliament, tried to extract a forced loan from all the different lords. Those who resisted the forced loan were imprisoned, and this would include many of the Saybrook patentees. Conditions would only worsen from there, and by 1635-36, the rumor is anyway, many of these lords, the Saybrook patentees, were planning on moving to New England. The edge of the empire surrounded by their Puritan brethren, and out of the reach of Charles I. And on top of that, and possibly explaining why the patentees focused so clearly on making a strong fortification before anything else, was that these lords were also fomenting rebellion from within the empire. And if that rebellion was discovered, or their revolution were to fail, they would have somewhere to run to. Now, it's a little bit of evidence that they had every intention of moving to Saybrook themselves. We can look at their own proposed government structure, which, as the Saybrook patentees outlined, would include two recognized, enshrined classes of people who would get to participate in the government. There would be the gentlemen and then the freeholders. The freeholders would be land-owning men, and they would elect from among themselves representatives to a lower house of government. This would mirror, in the parliamentary system in England, the House of Commons. Saybrook's upper house would consist of the gentlemen of the colony, who would not have to be elected, nor choose a representative. They would have a seat by right of their status, their aristocracy. Being a noble, and those nobles peers to one another, they would all be able to vote in this upper house directly, which would mirror the English upper house of the House of Lords. And in both cases at the time, these positions were hereditary. Now, the inclusion and recognition of gentlemen to hereditary positions would imply that the Saybrook patentees intended for people of their class to end up there. And that's the next little bit of evidence that these patentees truly did intend 
to remove to the New World if conditions in England got too bad for them. The interesting thing here about their plan of government is that a copy of it was sent to the Massachusetts General Court because the patentees wanted feedback from another colonial government about the feasibility of their plan. The General Court did not reject the creation of legal stratified social classes. What they did object to was uh, landowning men having the right to vote without the requirement that the Puritan colonies had that they also be official members of the church, that is, their local congregation. Remember, in the Puritan churches, you can go to church, but in order to be accepted as a member of the church, that was a whole other process of experiencing God's grace, realizing you are of the elect, and having other people of that congregation who already are recognized of the elect recognize you as also elect. And in the end, it's a way to restrict suffrage to the orthodoxy of the local church. And so the Massachusetts General Court, they couldn't deny these nobles the right to discriminate themselves from the rest of the people in their colony. But they strongly suggested that just being a man and owning land in Saybrook would not be enough to earn you suffrage. Moving on, as work on the settlement progresses, moving into the year 1636, George Fenwick arrives to inspect the progress. Now, we haven't heard his name before. Fenwick is a minor investor in the Saybrook colony, and he is not of as high of rank as Lord Say and Seal or Lord Brook. But as a patentee, when he arrives, he's essentially the boss of Governor John Winthrop Jr. and the engineer Lion Gardiner. He arrives in June of 1636 and just as quickly leaves in July of 1636, quite satisfied with the progress that Gardiner and his crew had made. And leaving with him was John Winthrop Jr., who had fulfilled his one-year contract to be governor of the Young Settlement. And this left Lion Gardiner in charge of the colony. This becomes important because events start to become a bit more serious at this point. Back in England, the king and all the officials under him, they get word of a plan for Puritan nobles to remove themselves to the New World, and with them their wealth. And so a law is passed requiring that you receive a license that allows you to travel to New England. Furthermore, these Puritan nobles, the Saybrook patentees, they have large estates, lots of property, lots of investments. Believe it or not, it's far easier for a poorer man to relocate at this time than it would be for a member of the aristocracy. Some of these ministers that we learned about earlier who just remove themselves very quickly to the New World, they don't have very much to begin with. And often, with support from noble sponsors, they're able to have enough portable wealth just to get themselves to the New World. Now, if you're a large landowner and you start selling off thousands and thousands of acres of land, mansions and businesses, fine English farms and your interests in large companies, it not only raises a few flags, but the conspicuous nature of what you're doing makes it easy for you to be stopped. As such, by the end of the year 1636, it doesn't look as promising as the beginning of the year that Fenwick would be the beginning of a wave of the noble patentees to the New World. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. The king and the Privy Council has effectively locked up their assets. And if you're a poor Puritan who's following Reverend John Cotton, you might be more willing to leave everything and essentially show up in New England a pauper. But what if you're someone who has everything? 
what if your father's sitting in the House of Lords and you're sitting on your rear end never having to lift a finger? Well, giving up everything is more of a sacrifice, isn't it? And so by year's end, it doesn't look like the nobles are coming. Which may have been just fine for Lion Gardner, as he found himself in charge of everything. And joining him that year would be his wife Mary. The two, glad to be reunited, quickly have a son named David, who would be the first baby born at Saybrook. But the good times wouldn't last for long, and it wouldn't be the fault of anyone at Saybrook as to what will happen next. In July of 1636, on Block Island, which is south of modern-day Rhode Island, one of the old planters of Massachusetts, John Oldham, was killed by a group of Native Americans. Massachusetts initially thought it was the Narragansett, or one of the Narragansett allies. Now, the Narragansett were allies of Roger Williams. Williams convinced them that it wasn't the Narragansett, but more likely the Pequot, whose nation lie in modern-day eastern Connecticut. Suddenly, a small skirmish on a small island in the Atlantic Ocean has turned into a conflict at Lion Gardener's back door. The larger political background of this is that the Pequot had long been allied with the Dutch and were an important part of the Dutch claim to the Connecticut River Valley, for which they called the Fresh River. The Pequot would now be convenient foes to the Puritans of New England because if they could get rid of the Pequot, they would also be pushing back the Dutch, who had long been trading along the Connecticut River. And it's likely that the Pequot were not the perpetrators of the killings on Block Island. As when Winthrop showed up with a force in their country, the Pequot thought they were there to trade. And at least initially coming up on the first villages, the natives didn't even take a defensive position. Another force led by John Endicott, who would also serve from time to time as governor of Massachusetts, first went to Block Island and killed all the natives there. And then after that arrived at Fort Saybrook, to which Lion Gardner was very upset. As between the two Massachusetts forces... Gardner knew this would only provoke further conflict and a full-scale war. Also, Endicott choosing to land at Fort Saybrook after committing a massacre would only implicate to the natives that the English at Fort Saybrook had something to do with any of this, which they did not. Gardner went further and tried to convince Endicott to stop his campaign. It didn't work. And to make things even worse, when Winthrop and Endicott did stop, they just went home, leaving little old Saybrook, the last outpost of the English world, where they would have to set in for a long winter. It's known at this time that Lion Gardner laid out the boundaries of a graveyard. And don't think the Pequot didn't take notice of all of this. Rather than attack the heavily populated Massachusetts colony, the little Providence colony aligned with the Narragansett, Saybrook would be the easy pickings. And so over the winter of 1636-1637, the Pequot begin appearing in the woods, and they start to pick off English people as they go off to find firewood or hunt for wild game. February 22nd, 1637, Line Gardner himself and nine others are attacked by the Pequot while outside the fort. Many die, but Gardner makes it back. And he records after this point that these small, guerrilla-style attacks in the woods turn into a full-on siege of Saybrook, all the English having to live inside of the fort. Gardner estimates that outside of the fort were as many as 700 Pequot warriors, taking their rounds, following their schedules, always aware. Now, they had taken some English, 
and they were going to use them as examples in front of the fort. Gardner had to watch helplessly as people were burned alive or skinned and then eaten. One Englishman that was a man by the name of Joseph Tilly, who was captured by the Pequot at one point. It's recorded that they tortured him for three days and then he died, all within sight of the fort. And then the Pequots carved up his body and then they began to wear his severed members as jewelry to taunt and horrify the English at the fort. At one point, Gardiner had had enough, and he asked for a parlay the best way he possibly could. The Pequots declined, and they declared that, since the English gave no quarter to women and children in their villages, slaughtering them, they would kill Englishmen also. They would kill them like mosquitoes, and they would kill men, women, and children. There would be no parlay. And Gardiner and his little colony would have to pay for the sins of Endicott and Winthrop. All in all, more than 20 men would be killed or wounded. Travel up the Connecticut River would be impossible, and any of the Saybrook structures outside of the fort were destroyed. But slowly, things would begin to turn for the Pequot, and relief was on the way for Saybrook. For one thing, Roger Williams of the Providence Colony made sure that the Narragansett did not end up aligning with the Pequot and thus kept the Narragansett and the English out of a more disastrous war. This would help Saybrook because the Narragansett numbers alone, as far as the number of warriors they would have, could easily overwhelm the small fort. And detachments of the Massachusetts militia would finally show up in April of 1637. Some sources say this trickles into May, and it was actually a combined force. The English were commanded by John Mason and John Underhill, and then their Mohegan allies were commanded by the great sachem, Uncas. They quickly fought their way to the fort, and the Pequot ran off. Gardner relieved for himself and for his people and his young son and his wife, but also relieved that now he gets to vent to Mason and Underhill, basically saying, I told you so. The first time Massachusetts came through Pequot country, I told you this was going to happen, and now here we are. Furthermore, Lion Gardner did not trust Uncas as he appeared to be the same type of man as those who had tortured his friend Tilly. Indeed, the Pequot and the Mohegan are of extremely close relation to one another. And it would be difficult for a man who not two years ago was living in the Netherlands to distinguish between them. So he looked at Uncas, and Uncas looked like an enemy to him. And he expressed this to Uncas, to which Uncas and a select few of his warriors left the fort and went into the woods hunting for Pequot. They came back with several severed heads and a single living Pequot warrior. And in front of the English, they twisted and pulled at his body with ropes, looking to tear him apart in this manner. John Underhill, who will be quickly known for his atrocities against the natives, was so disturbed by this act of torture that he shot the poor man in the head to put him out of his misery. And yet with this, the general rabble of Massachusetts men celebrated and gave praise to God for the allyship of Uncas. These were far different times, folks. Gardiner is at least satisfied that Uncas is on their side. But now, despite all intentions to stay out of this conflict or prevent it from ever happening, Gardiner bears witness to the fort he built at Saybrook becoming the rallying point for English and native allies alike in their planned second campaign into Pequot country. A lot of these men in the uh, Massachusetts militia, rather than picturing them as the clueless colonists of later wars like King Philip's War, 
Here in the 1630s, a lot of these men were actually vets of the Thirty Years' War. These were tough men, and they were used to a type of total warfare that the Pequot did not know, nor any of the natives of New England knew. And in the midst of all this, George Fenwick arrives again, and this time he brings his wife, Lady Alice Fenwick. I'm sure George felt a little guilty about bringing his wife into such a dangerous place, and I'm sure Lady Alice was questioning all of her life decisions leading to this happening. But she must have been a breath of fresh air to this fort, which was probably full of men. It's noted that she had the most beautiful auburn hair you've ever seen. And she probably had a air of breeding and sophistication that the simple women of Boston simply didn't have. And again, upon just arriving, since he's the only patentee present in the colony of Saybrook, he assumes the government of Saybrook. But let's turn to the rest of the Pequot War. From Saybrook, Mason and Underhill would originally arrive by boat into Pequot country, Uncas and the Mohegans close at hand. But with just a small skirmish, the Pequot were able to push them back into their boats, and the English retreated. The Pequot celebrated. But the English did not return to Saybrook. They didn't even go back to Massachusetts. They actually went to Narragansett country, where they spoke to the great sachem Mayantonomi who is the nephew of Canonicus, the two chiefs responsible for the sale of land over several purchases that would now be most of Rhode Island. These are powerful men. Mason and Underhill convince Mayantonomi to fight with them against the Pequot, who at times could be rivals or even enemies to the Narragansett. So it wasn't such a hard sell. Mayantonomi raised 500 warriors to fight behind him. And in two days' time, the Mohegan the Narragansett, and the English show back up in Pequot country, taking them by complete surprise. And this is when the English defaulted to their experience in warfare on continental Europe. The Pequot retreat to a fort they have in the woods, set up in a palisade style typical of Native Americans in the Northeast. Not of stones with arrow slits and drawbridges, nor even a more simpler star fort, it resembled a long fence that was made up of logs driven into the ground. The entire structure would be circular or oval. The Pequot seeking safety within, with just a narrow entrance exposed, guarded by their strongest warriors. To the horror of the Narragansett, the English just went too far in their attacks, and they killed everyone, setting the fortress ablaze and sending volley after volley from their guns into the fort. They killed the men, the women, and the children. As was custom among the Narragansett and the other natives of the Northeast, women and children especially could be adopted into their tribe. But as the recorded accounts claim, hundreds of women and children met the same fate as the warriors of the Pequot. Again, the Narragansett were disturbed. Further disturbed by the persistence of these Englishmen to not just raid the enemy or set fire to an enemy town or fortification, but to burn and shoot indiscriminately in one place until nothing was moving. Total war. At the end of the day, the Pequot, who had laid siege to Fort Saybrook, discovered that one of the few advantages that the English certainly had over the Native Americans in terms of warfare was that they knew how to hold an effective siege and carry it out without quarter to its very bloody end. John Underhill himself records that not more than five Pequot escaped from their 
attack on Fort Mystic. Underhill would go on to be a famed Indian fighter. We would now say infamous Indian fighter from all the way up in Maine, all the way over to New Netherland, where he would participate in the bloodiest and most shameful parts of Keefe's War in the 1640s, soiling a decent reputation the Dutch had uh, as far as their treatment of Native Americans were concerned. This one attack pretty much ended the Pequot, at least for now. And most of the living Pequot, those who were not in that fort, were absorbed by Uncas's Mohegans. As new adoptees, they would not have the full rights and status of a Mohegan, and the Pequot would spend some time being second-class citizens in Uncas's municipality. He was known to, at times, be quite cruel to them, but virtually overnight it made Uncas into a regional power, much like Osemaquin of the Wampanoag. His alliance with the English, at least in the short to midterm, will do a lot for him personally. It is known that 200 Pequot surrendered to their neighbors the Narragansett, finding them a better choice than their enemy, the Pequot. Well, the Narragansett, who have this new relationship with the Puritan colonies, apparently, handed over all 200 Pequot to English authorities, who proceeded to kill all the men, except for two, and then enslave the women and children. If you listen to our episode on Roger Williams of Providence, he received one young slave boy he named William. His mother and siblings being owned by John Winthrop. Seemingly, the Pequot were wiped off the face of the earth by their absorption or murder by the English Narragansett and Mohegan. And honestly, most histories imply such that the Pequot nation disappeared altogether. And yet, to this day, there are still two federally recognized bands of the Pequot, two separate Pequot nations, both in Connecticut. So, you tell them they don't exist. But ending our little section here on the Pequot War, in terms of how it involved Fort Saybrook, Lion Gardner and his little settlement that he built, trying as hard as he could to stay out of this conflict, ended up becoming the beachhead of sorts in the final campaign of the war. But let's turn to England. Where are these Puritan lords? Moving into the year 1637, in April, the Privy Council passes a new set of laws continuing the ban on immigration to New England without license. And conditions are getting so bad that even the king's court is hearing rumors about lords relocating to the New World, even Oliver Cromwell himself. All rumors, perhaps. But what was actually happening is during this year, these Puritan lords seem to have committed to not running away, not relocating, not creating a self-imposed exile, but pushing back on the power of the king himself. During 1637, there was an uprising in Scotland as historians have labeled it. And to the south and side of England, they had their supporters, their co-conspirators, some of the lead suspects to have supported the Scottish uprising from within England were the Earl of Warwick, Lord Say and Seal, Lord Brooke. Now we're entering a curious time in English history, where the Puritans are no longer relocating to the New World to start a new city on a hill, to start their own church, to make a new England. What's quickly falling into place is a new coalition of which the Puritans will be a major component that will take over England, dethrone Charles I, put Bishop Loud in chains, the Scottish uprising, a prelude to the English Civil War. But now let's return to the Saybrook colony. The Pequot have been defeated. The Puritan migrations are on the wane. The Puritan lords, who are the patentees to Saybrook, are not coming over to join George Fenwick 
This would be the situation of the colony moving into the year 1638, which perhaps I'm a bit of a romantic, but now Saybrook must have seemed to these settlers to be a bit of a paradise, an Eden-like settlement surrounded by nature, off the Connecticut River, by the Atlantic Ocean. Unfortunately, the entire area had been just about depopulated by decades of old world diseases and then more recently war. But after the fact, it no doubt appeared scenic to these settlers. Far away from the brewing Civil War, having no internal issues involving dissidents like Anne Hutchinson or Roger Williams, John Wheelwright, clean air, good fishing, and fertile farms. And so we see that now, Saybrook could grow a little. And at its maximum extent, it was probably a 40,000-acre block of what is now today Old Saybrook in Connecticut, Lime, Old Lime, Killingsworth, Essex, Chester, Clinton, Deep River, and Westbrook. Yes, Saybrook was more than just what is called Saybrook today. And it's hard to get a, a sense of the size of this colony. I got this old book called The Vital Records of Saybrook Colony, 1635 to 1860. And it actually had basically next to nothing on who was in Saybrook when Saybrook was independent of the Connecticut colony. And in fact, it's pretty much the very first page of the book that mentions that Saybrook has 104 founders, and then it gives the date 1635 to 1660, after it's already been absorbed by Connecticut. And so that obscures the issue even more. But at most, if we're going by this book, we are to assume that 104 different families, the male head of the family being the founder, showed up between 1635 and 1660. If I'm painting you a picture of Saybrook in 1638, you can assume that in total, there was far less than 104 families. Now, these are big Puritan families, which could include 10 children each. Still, in total, Saybrook would have well less than a thousand people, being that the vital records will call you a founder if you showed up in 1659, which I don't particularly agree with. In August, Lyon and Mary Gardner have another child, a baby girl named Mary. Gardner has another year left in his contract that he made with the patentees. And George Fenwick and his family still govern the colony. Fenwick being the only noble man in it, and thus the only member of what would be their upper house. It's quite likely he ruled as governor without following the government outlined by the patentees several years before, as there simply weren't enough nobility to fulfill the basic outline of it. And the records are quite vague on the subject, but if he is serving in the executive position as governor, as appointed by the patentees, or just by the fact that he's the only patentee present, and then he is the lone member of the upper house of the legislature, even if they had a lower house full of representatives, it would seem that Fenwick could pretty much do whatever he wanted. At least so he thought. At one point, he tries to institute a quit rent, which I went on a long rant about in the main episodes concerning. But as far as you need to know, a quit rent would be the equivalent to a property tax. Fenwick was unable to extract his quit rent. Much like the proprietors who owned the Maine and the New Hampshire colonies, the settlers at Saybrook knew they could very easily go to the Connecticut colony, or they can go to Massachusetts, or they can go to Plymouth, or they could go to Rhode Island, where there was no property tax. And so he was unsuccessful in his pursuit. It's still a very nice place. In the next year, he would bring over the rest of his immediate family, his young daughters, as well as his own sister Elizabeth, to join him and his wife Alice. Contrast this to what's happening back in Old England during this same period. King Charles I demands from the nobility that they take an oath of allegiance to him. 
as the walls around him are starting to crumble and he needs to know who's on his side. Lord Saiyan Seal and Lord Brook refuse to take the oath, which might seem like a small thing to you, but again, supporting an uprising secretly in 1637 to publicly refusing to take an oath in 1639 is quite a turn. Both of them would be briefly imprisoned for this. The top firebrand around King Charles, Bishop Loud, himself was arrested in 1640 by Parliament on the accusation that he was trying to reunite the Church of England with the Catholic Church, something we've talked about. Sensing his arrest months in advance, Loud had ramped up his persecution of Catholics in an attempt to demonstrate his high Anglicanism was not popery, himself having 40 priests arrested on suspicion that they were Catholic. Of course, Charles I's wife, Henrietta Maria, made sure they were all released. His seeming campaign of both ends of the spectrum, Puritan and Catholic, left him with basically no friends, and he found himself again arrested, awaiting his execution. And come the year 1642, Charles I storms into the House of Commons, providing the spark that starts the English Civil War, the dry tinder of which had been stacking up for decades. Lord Brooke, not looking to relocate, now leads troops. He's part of the parliamentary forces. And in the second half of the year 1642, Brooke has a string of successful engagements, pushing back the king's forces again and again, straight into the new year, until the 2nd of March, 1643, when he was killed by a sniper. And with that, the Brooke in Saybrook was no more. Now, Lord Say and Seal is a member of the House of Lords, and thanks to people like Lord Brooke, it appears that Parliament is winning the Civil War. Lord Say and Seal would no longer have to dream about being part of the aristocracy of the Saybrook colony, the little outpost at the edge of the English realm. He was now on the Parliamentary Commission of Foreign Plantations, essentially a board of directors for all the English colonies. This would seem to be good news all around. But remember, our sole patentee at Saybrook, George Fenwick and Lady Alice Fenwick, they are the lone nobility. And with the events of 1643, they came to realize more and more the dream of Saybrook was not to be, rather than a place of refuge or an insurance policy. For the Puritans of the ruling class, it had been forgotten, as the Puritans as a major faction of the parliamentary forces against the king came to control England itself. And so, in this very same year, 1643, when the Puritan colonies decided to gather together and make a confederation, sometimes called the New England Confederation or the United Colonies of New England, George Fenwick acted as one of the Connecticut representatives, beginning the process of merging Saybrook with Connecticut. And perhaps he would have stayed at Saybrook. It seems like it was a nice place. His family and himself enjoyed it greatly. However, in 1644... His wife, Lady Alice, gives birth to their daughter, Dorothy, but then dies shortly afterward. I'm going to quote Marguerite Ellis, who wrote a book called The Connecticut Trilogy, a lovely book that's more poetry than history. George Fenwick's heart was broken. The mirage of a great colony had vanished. Bitterness was heaped on blighted hope. Indeed, it seems that Saybrook had nothing left for Fenwick and his family. He would bury Lady Alice within the fort, and then gifted a large estate in what would now be Lyme, Connecticut, to a man by the name of Matthew Griswold, who was tasked with protecting and caring for Lady Alice's grave. Shortly thereafter, 
he transferred the entire Saybrook Grant to the young Connecticut colony upstream. And with that, the Saybrook colony was no more. But our small, upstart, less-than-legitimate colony of Connecticut now extended down the Connecticut River straight to the Atlantic Ocean, thanks to Saybrook. And yes, as you can tell, we've entered the legacy portion of our podcast. Saybrook didn't just disappear. By becoming part of Connecticut, all of its settlers also became part of Connecticut and its story. Our sturdy and level-headed engineer, Lion Gardner, would stick around for quite a while. A windmill he built in 1654 lasted until the American Revolution. The man knew what he was doing. Lucky for the Connecticut colony in the 1660s, with the restoration of the monarchy, the king came looking for paperwork on all these various New World colonies, asking for anything that would legitimize or show authorization from power derived from his father or his grandfather that would rightly necessitate the creation of new charters now that the monarchy had been restored. Well, everything that the Connecticut colony had was derived from that paperwork that Fenwick had given them way back in 1644. The dubious Warwick Grant, whereby King James I had delegated his power into this Council for New England, and the Council for New England had given the Earl of Warwick this grant, and the Earl of Warwick had sold this grant to the Saybrook patentees, and George Fenwick had given this grant over to the Connecticut colony, and from that, Connecticut had derived their own charter. As odd as it may seem, this is what they were able to say they had in the 1660s to King Charles II in their plea to have a new charter sanctioned by this new monarch. And don't you know they received that charter? And so Connecticut remained a colony and then eventually became, of course, a U.S. state. Now, there were other colonies in a very similar position who did not have to use a real estate term, this title history. And you know what? They're not states today because they were dissolved at that point in time. Quite a legacy for Saybrook. In 1871, there was an excavation at Fort Saybrook in Lady Fenwick herself. A physician noted that she still had her beautiful auburn hair. And so with this, I end the episode. I'm going to quote the previously mentioned Marguerite Alice in her Connecticut trilogy concerning Saybrook. A failure at the hands of fate forever holds a sentimental interest. Saybrook passed by, deserted, pathetic but lovely, catches at the heart and makes one long to stay and do a little fruitless dreaming of one's own. And with that, tune in next time as we look at the dream of what would be the New Haven Colony whose founders envisioned it to be the real city on a hill, a Bible commonwealth that would put the other Puritan colonies to shame.